Good morning, everybody. Today we're going to be starting, as Madison said, a new series in the book of Ruth, which is a book in the Old Testament where we haven't been for a while. And uh, that's going to, we'll be in it for about seven weeks, but interspersed will be a few other messages so that it'll take us in total to Advent, which is that four-week period before Christmas. Um, And so we'll be basically in Ruth for the fall. And before we jump in, I want to kind of give you the lay of the land for where we've been and how Ruth even connects to uh, the the preaching series we've been in. Those of you who've been with us for a couple of years, uh, even within the last uh, 12 to 15 months, you'll have overlapped with our Matthew series, which we started back in 2020 um, and finished uh, early in the spring of this year. And in that series, uh, as all the Gospels do, we focused on Jesus But Matthew's particular bent is to look at him as the eternal king who had arrived to usher in his kingdom. Then this spring, we got into a series called The One and Others. And in that series, we took a look at and wrestled with what it means to be Jesus's uh, kingdom citizens and to be obedient to the commands that he's given to us within the context of community. And we saw the underlying motivation for all of the one and others was consistently the same theme, that theme being love. So Ruth now is going to give us a chance to delve more deeply into this idea of love in a world that so often misunderstands and misconstrues it. Um, And what Ruth does for us, or will do for us, is it's just going to put on the characters in this book, put on, even if unwittingly, this performance for the ages of what selfless love looks like. And in turn, that really tells us something about who our God is, right? It isn't at the end of the day ultimately about Ruth or Naomi or Boaz or any of these other characters, but about what God is trying to reveal to us about who he is. And so the goal of this book and our time, honestly, is to humble us in the presence of our God and to evoke in us a worship of him as we see his transcendent love on display embodied through his people in this story. A little bit of background, and I don't want to consume all of our time today in kind of an overview of Ruth, so I'll probably sprinkle this throughout the series, but the genre of the book of Ruth is in the genre of historical narrative, all right? Narrative being a story, but this is a story that's true in in the history of Israel and in our world. Um, We could describe a part of what the Gospels, like Matthew, um, was or is as historical narrative, but Ruth's even a little bit different because Matthew wasn't just story, narrative. It also had interspersed other things like parables in it or didactic teachings, which is where Jesus, for example, on the Sermon on the Mount is giving like specific moral teachings, right? We don't really see that in Ruth. Ruth is pure narrative, and to some degree that dictates how we read it and how in turn it's preached because it's not primarily meant to be broken down line by line as we might do with, say, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, an epistle. Um, But instead, we arrive at the truth God wants to reveal to us by actually putting ourselves into the story, while at the same time seeking to understand the unique historical and cultural context that Ruth took place within. Okay, so it's a little bit different. We've not necessarily been in um, a book like Ruth uh, in a while, and we really have to see it as a pilgrim journey and see where we identify with the pilgrims who are in this journey and then in turn what God is revealing to us even as he reveals it to them. 
there are a number of themes we're going to encounter. And instead of just stating what those are, I'm actually going to um, in, entice you a little bit, I suppose, by saying, I think you'd be interested in turning to the book of Ruth if. All right? So Ruth is a book that you might want to turn to if, for example, you're open to learning about a love that is very different than perhaps what you think love is. And for that matter, much better than what you think love is. You may turn to the book of Ruth if you're wondering where God is, if he's there at all in the midst of the suffering and circumstances that you're going through. You might turn to the book of Ruth if you wanted to understand if suffering has any meaning or purpose in life. Ruth is a book you might turn to if you wondered what it looks like to, be, to appropriately lament when you hurt because of the suffering in your life. And especially this may be helpful for a Christian who feels guilty about that because if you, you feel like if you lament, if you're honest about your emotions and your feelings, even anger that you have, that somehow you are denying the presence or goodness of God. But there is a place for lament. And we can look to the book of Ruth for what that place is. You might turn to the book of Ruth if you were wondering how to survive when no matter how much love you pour into another person, it never seems to be reciprocated. In other words, we can look to Ruth to teach us what it looks like to endure in love. You might turn to the book of Ruth if you're wondering how to endure without love when you long for it from another person, maybe in marriage if you're not married. And you might turn to the book of Ruth if you've longed for authentic community and you want to know how authentic community is created, what it's founded upon. These and many more things you might turn to the book of Ruth to find the answers to. And so we have that opportunity to get into some of that throughout this fall. So if you have your Bibles in front of you and you would open to Ruth, so it's early on in your Bible, you've got the first five books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are called the Pentateuch, right? These are the books of law, the books of Moses. And then shortly after that, you've got Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. So it's seven or eight books in. You'll find that on page 262 of those hardbacked blue ESV Bibles if you want to use that. And I believe it'll be on the screen behind me too if you'd prefer to just read off of that. And I would, ask, I would like to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you are able to do that. Ruth chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 18 and talking about those today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left with her two son, without her two sons and her husband. Verse 6. Then she arose with her two daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they were on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may become, that, they, that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15. And she said, See, your, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to her, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple other uh, notes of historical importance that we get into right in verse 1 that I think will be helpful for today and moving forward. A couple, uh, <clears throat> couple of things mentioned in passing here that are, that are pretty significant. The narrator here telling this account talks about, uh, first of all, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so this is a time period that takes place during the period of the judges in Israel. Quick flyby to give some perspective. The nation of Israel's inception, its beginning, really began with its father Abraham. Right? Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had many sons. One of them's name was Joseph. Jacob's other sons were, were <coughs> uh, jealous of Joseph's preferential treatment or Jacob's preferential treatment of Joseph, so they actually threw him into a pit. Some slave traders come, take him to Egypt. He starts out really low in society as a slave, but ends up by the grace and favor of God, becoming second in command in the land only next to Pharaoh. It was timely. Actually, it was another famine taking place at the time, and Joseph was now in a position, through the wisdom God gave him, uh, to be able to actually spare both Egypt and the surrounding nations of the full repercussions of this famine. And lo and behold... Uh, he implements this wisdom. There's all kinds of provision uh, ahead of time they built up for these years of famine. And who comes to Egypt but Jacob and his sons? They're reunited with Joseph, and uh, they find favor, not only with Joseph, who has God's perspective, but with Pharaoh. And so they're given the best of the land and kind of happily ever after for that chapter in Israel's history. Well, 
It's not long before Joseph is forgotten by the pharaohs in the land, and uh, the people of Israel were multiplying rapidly and making the pharaohs nervous. And so one of the pharaohs, one of the rulers, the leaders in Egypt decided, okay, we're going to oppress these people and enslave them lest they rise up and take over. So 400 years of uh, go by in which Israel now, this great nation, is enslaved in Egypt. Well, God raises up a deliverer as they cry out for deliverance, and that person is Moses. He goes and he takes them out of Egypt, and eventually after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness into the promised land. Joshua actually crosses them over to the promised land. And so period of the judges takes place between their entrance in, the pro- entrance in the promised land and when God gives them kings as they demand, we want a king, God wasn't good enough as king, but we want earthly kings to be like these other nations. Judges takes place in, in the in-between. This is when our account of Ruth is taking place. And this is important to know. It, well, this is kind of true of Israel throughout its history. They were not, they didn't do real great at following God with all their heart during that time. And we see again and again the cyclical pattern of their rebellion against God, God sending oftentimes, most often, it's other, their enemies in to, to punish, to discipline them. And then we see that they do repent, they turn back to God, and he raises up a deliverer from within. These judges, not yet kings, but these kind of one-off rulers who deliver Israel from the hand of their enemies and all is well again for at least a while with God. And these were colorful characters. These were not your squeaky clean Uh, characters, these judges. Samson probably being one of the best known, if you know his story, he did some great things. He did some really rotten things, too. And at the very end of the book, and in fact, if your Bible is open, and you've got judges, uh, or yeah, as as the previous page where Ruth starts, you'll see that it ends saying, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's not the only place in Judges that says that. That was characteristic of that day and age. And goodness gracious, is that not characteristic of our own too? So this is where Judges ends, Ruth begins. Ruth takes place within that time period. So Naomi, Ruth, Boaz that we'll meet later in this series, they're all in that contemporary time period of Israel's culture and history. The other thing that's important to know is the significance of Moab, right? This nation that Naomi and Elimelech and their sons were migrating to, traveling to, to escape this famine. This was a region that was southeast, I don't know what that looks like for you, of Bethlehem. They would have had to have crossed the Jordan River, uh, the Dead Sea is below that, so it was a pretty rugged journey of about 30, probably plus miles, over three to four or even more days to escape this famine and to a place where apparently they were much better off. Moab was much better off. But here's the background of Moab, okay? Moab, a guy named Moab, was the founder. He was the son of a man named Lot who had an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. Lot was actually a nephew of Abraham. We talked about him before, the father of Israel. So the Moabites, as they were come to be called, were cousins of the Israelites, but they're not in favor with one another. Okay, the Moabites were one of those people groups who were actually standing in the way of Israel getting into Canaan, the promised land, after that exodus from Egypt. So there was bad blood between these nations, and they were not friendly with each other. So I say all that to say uh, a couple of things, but one for now. Naomi and Elimelech must have been pretty desperate to have left uh, Bethlehem for this nation of all nations at this point in their history. 
couple other things up front thematically that are important to keep in view today, but for this whole series. This, this whole story of Ruth is really one that tells a story about love birthed in the midst of suffering, that love is really forged. That's where love is forged. And when I say that, I mean when love shines most brightly in our own expression of it, but also where God's people come to understand his love for us most profoundly. And then the other thing I wanted to bring back, and I say bring back because if you were here back in May, Pastor Rick Cohen from Adirondack Christian Fellowship was one of the guest preachers throughout the summer. He's a good friend, and uh, he, he did an uh, overview of Ruth. And I knew that. I knew we were going to be doing Ruth this fall, and he's like, oh, well, should I not do it then? I'm like, no, actually, I think that would be great. Kind of whet our appetite from a bird's eye view. One of the refrains he said over and over again, which was so good and will be important to keep uh, in mind, is that the Bible is one story told in many stories. And it's important for us to keep that perspective lest we get so caught up in the details that we forget the story that this smaller story is really reinforcing. The story of God throughout redemption history culminating in the person and work of his son Jesus. Okay, so now into our passage for today. This account begins with a lot of suffering and pain. That's clear and evident. That's not by accident. The narrator is making that plain for reasons that will become more clear to us as we go. We see several things that would have been uh, painfully difficult, if not tragic. We see a famine, all right? A famine, if you don't know, it's a, it's a drought or from a heat wave um, that results in there being little produce. Uh, and, and so therefore, struggling to survive. Starvation often comes along with famine, especially in that time period in history. So they're dealing with a famine. It's evidenced actually in the names that they give to their two sons. So Mechlon and Kilion, their names actually mean respectively sickly and wasting. Now that may seem cruel, but it wouldn't have at the time. It was actually fairly commonplace to name family members, sons and daughters, after current events that were going on. So it wasn't meant to be prophetic of like, you're going to be sickly and you're going to waste away. It was more of like, a cry out to God almost like, this is the day and age in which we live, kind of memorialized in the names they gave to their sons. Okay, so they're dealing with a famine, and as a result, they decide we're going to leave our homeland. That was not an easy decision, right? It's not like moving from New York to Missouri or California, like moving to another nation, other languages, different culture in its entirety would have been a very, very difficult decision, not to mention a potentially hostile situation for them. And then, worst of all, as I can imagine for Naomi, within 10 years, she loses not just her husband, but her two sons. It's hard for us to appreciate, it's hard for me to appreciate the implications of that. We can appreciate it insofar as we understand the pain of loss. But beyond that for Naomi, her provision and her security were gone. Such were the women dependent upon the men of the families in that day and age for security. Um, If a husband died, which often happened later in life and would leave a widow behind, it was the responsibility of the sons to actually care for her, to bring her into their home, even if they were married with their own kids at that point in time. Not only was it a responsibility, there was a study done that kind of compared, (laughs) uh, they asked like American uh, men and then, Uh, Middle Eastern men, like if you had to save your mom or your wife or your daughter, who would you save? And like the 
the order, the priorities were like reversed. And I think it was like the daughter, the wife, the mom for Americans, and then it, for the Middle Easterners, it was like the, the mom, and then maybe the wife or the daughter. It, such was the bond between a son and a mother. So this was emotionally devastating to Naomi, but also her, her provision and her security, who was gonna care for her? And she's in a land without, without anybody locally who's going to do that or be able to take up that baton. Beyond that, legacy was an important thing at this time in Israel. To lose your, um, your husband and your sons meant that your family line, apart from some intervention, was done. And that was significant enough just for a, in the microcosm of her family. But when you zoom out and you, spoiler alert, jump to the end of Ruth, the last two lines tell us the lineage that uh, Obed, the son that was had through Ruth that she gave to Naomi, leads to, you understand this was more significant. Because Obed ends up being the great-grandfather or the, gran- the grandfather, the great-grandfather of King David. And of course, in the line of King David would come the ultimate redeemer, Jesus. There was significant suffering and pain, significant loss and trial that Naomi was going through right now. She was away from home. She had lost her sense of meaning and purpose. She had no hope for a future in her mind. And inevitably, the question that rises in situations like this is, where is God? Where is my God? That's only magnified by the meaning of Naomi's name and Elimelech's name. Naomi's name meant pleasant. Elimelech's name, Eli, Melech, my God is king. And the circumstances seemed anything but pleasant or like God was in charge and a king right now in her life. And yet, the narrator, knowing that this would be probably our first impulse, gives us a a hint of the hand of God, the hidden hand of God, if you will, at work as early as verse 6. This is something you'll see. It's a, it's a part of what's so beautiful about ancient Hebrew literature and uh, the way that a book like Ruth is written is that very infrequently is God explicitly mentioned in this book. And only once is the narrator themselves actually naming Yahweh. And that's at the very end. And yet, if we're watching we see the hidden hand of God at work from the very beginning of the story. The first example of that we see is in verse 6, which said, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Bless you. So there's a spark of hope. Enough to spark Naomi's feeble faith at this moment, so, such that she's like, okay, one foot in front of another. I'm at least going to go back to Bethlehem and see what happens. Because she had to know in her heart of hearts where God is involved, resurrection life is possible. So she begins the journey back to Bethlehem. Now, this is going to feel like a bit of a tangent, but hopefully I'll bring it all back. I think it's important. The fact that we're told that God visited his people here is significant, all right? We see that the ending of the famine is in the hands of God, right? He brings relief and food. It's attributed to him. 
the implication here is that God is involved in all human affairs and in the details of our life. And a Jew, furthermore, Naomi, would have understood God's involvement in the famine to begin with. If he's the one that brings deliverance from it, she would have known he was the one who brought it to begin with. And that colors not just how we see the famine, but that begins to color how we understand her and her family's decision to move from Bethlehem to Moab to begin with and actually introduces us to some of the complexity of following Jesus, the complexity of the people of God as being sinner saints, both. And we see both with Naomi. See, at the time of the judges, as I said, we're told that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was not a good time in Israel's history. God was frequently bringing his discipline into the lives of his people and this nation so that their hearts would turn back to him. Most often we see that in the form of him sending their enemies in to wake them up. Um, but we also know um, from many other places in the Old Testament, God would use a famine. He would use what appears to be natural disasters or hardships to bring about repentance in his people's lives as well. So Leviticus 26, for example, 19 to 20 says, this is God speaking, I will punish you for your sins seven times over I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron, no rain, right? And the ground beneath you like bronze, hard and infertile. Your strength will be spent in vain trying to cultivate this ground because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield its fruit. Speaking of famine here, and so Ruth is actually, the book of Ruth is recording for us an instance of God's discipline in the lives of his people not recorded in the book of Judges. This is another form of God's punishment for his people's rebellion. So that famine, rightly understood when we're reading the Bible and from a Jewish person's perspective, was the Lord's discipline. All right? Now, either Naomi and Elimelech and their family didn't recognize the famine as punishment, but more likely they did. And rather than repent of what they could or be a part of inspiring the nation towards a repentance toward God, they flee for the unclean land of Moab, their enemies. They're seeking refuge not under the shelter of God's wings, but amongst their enemies. And by the way, there's a further hint of this when in the very first verse we're told that uh, the man of Bethlehem and Judah and his family went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Well, sojourn is a short temporary stay. Ten years is not a very short period of time. And the only thing that actually resulted in Naomi's return was the fact that she lost everything. So there are hints that maybe, perhaps, this wasn't the best decision on the part of Naomi and her family. See, this is a major theme in the Bible, trial, hardship, and what we do in the midst of it, how we understand God's purposes in the midst of it. Because in trial, when we endure by faith, when we repent, when we wait upon the Lord, we can trust he's going to intervene. He's going to bring restoration. He's going to bring new life. He's going to bring forgiveness and reconciliation. But instead, it seems as if what we see is a family that was seeking to escape rather than deal head-on and endure in the midst of suffering. They don't deal with the root causes. They're just reacting to the circumstances around them, which may bring temporary relief, but in the long run, there's going to be devastating consequences. Now, hear this. And I hate always caveating things, but I do think it's really important in this instance. 
To point this out as most likely a poor decision on the part of Naomi and her family is not to diminish her pain or her suffering. So the first thing I want to say is this suffering and pain and tragedy are complex. And as often as if not, if, if not more often when we experience it, it is not due directly to our sin, but the product of living in a fallen and broken world. And secondly, even when it is the Lord's discipline, the hardship that we're undergoing, God is not callous toward his people. And I hope that we'll come to see that in this series because it's most profoundly on display in the form of Ruth herself as embodying God's response to Naomi in the midst of this tragedy, even a part of which may have been brought upon herself. And in fact, even in our chapter here, we see twice over Ruth's tears with Naomi. Those were God's tears through Ruth with Naomi. God is so compassionate, so gracious, the Bible even paints that as a priority over his discipline in many respects. We see it again and again. For example, in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8, probably one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, talks about God's steadfast love, his hesed love, which we'll be talking a lot about in this series. It says this, listen, by the way, for the proportion of emphasis given to God's hesed, one-way, loyal love versus his discipline. The Lord passed before him, Moses, this is while Moses was on the mountain, Mount Sinai, receiving the law of God, and God's revealing something of himself to Moses, and he proclaimed to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. No doubt a part of that impulse to fall prostrate and worship God in that moment was a deeper recognition of the holiness of God and the difference between Moses and God when it comes to him as a sinner and God as holy and understanding the necessity of discipline in the lives of God's people. But I would say probably the greater thing that impacted Moses in that moment was the proportion that God emphasized his steadfast love to thousands versus his discipline upon his sinful people to the third and fourth generation. This is who our God is. Our God is a God of compassion. He's a God of discipline because he disciplines those whom he loves. But he's a God of compassion. And while Naomi may have been in the wrong for some of her decisions that led to this point, God shows up through the person of Ruth to demonstrate the kind of God that he is that comes alongside of those who begin a journey of repentance. But in this story, we see not only that one of the, hard, the functions of hardship is discipline, God's discipline, we also see it as a forge, a love producer. Suffering produces love that shines more brightly than where it doesn't exist sometimes. We see in this story, it's kind of like people's metal is tested, what they're made of. And we see the strength of hesed love come alive. And you have to watch for it carefully because it's actually pretty infrequently that the actual Hebrew word hesed is used, but you see it throughout the actions of the characters involved in this story. 
Now, I've kind of talked around it, and even Madison mentioned it up front, but what is, what is Hesed love? Hesed love defined would be this loyal love, faithful love, one-directional love that doesn't expect something in return, or love that commits without an exit strategy. Those are all different ways of talking about this unique kind of love that we see in the book of Ruth. It's so different, too, than the kind of love that is understood kind of ubiquitously today in our culture. Even in our own lives, if we're honest, it's our, our, our lens for what love should look like is tainted by the world that we live in today. Because so oftentimes in my own life, love is dictated by how I feel, right? Anybody else relate to that? It's a feeling. If I feel passionate about something, if I feel in love, then that must be right. But if I don't, start to question Is that indicating something's wrong about this? So love in our culture oftentimes is associated with a feeling. And then even if it's unspoken, that feeling becomes the basis of covenant in those relationships, commitment to the other person. And if you stop feeling love, then that becomes a legitimate basis to let go of that commitment. Am I alone here in recognizing that that sounds pretty much like the idea of love in our world today? at least in our culture as we know it. There's a second thing I think that characterizes it, and that is that this kind of love comes with an expectation of getting something in return. Man, I'll do anything for you so long as there's a proportionate response, so long as I get something in return. I'm willing to make sacrifices so long as I have the relative assurance that I'm going to get something back in return. It's calculated. It's a calculated love that sets ahead of time a cost that we're unwilling to pay and, and at which point, if we're asked to pay that, we're no longer willing to love. So, based on a feeling, love is dictated by how we feel and expects something in return. Versus Hesed love, this love we're going to see in this story, in which feelings aren't unimportant. They're not unimportant. God has made us emotional beings. But the priority is commitment. And we believe, and it's again and again seen in Scripture, feelings, passion, will often follow that commitment. And it's also this Hesed love, a love that doesn't demand or have an expectation of getting something in return. And a love that knows the cost that we might have to pay is total. Total. All of ourselves, maybe even death. And it's beautifully on display throughout the story, and we'll get glimpses of it even here in chapter one. We see it actually first in Naomi. She gives us glimpses of Hesed love. Because in verse 7, she sets six, verse 6, she sets out for home. But by verse 8, she stops in her tracks. She's self-aware and others aware enough to stop and recognize, mm, man, the implications of this, listen, my life's over, but there are significant implications of this for Ruth and for Orpah. And so she strongly urges them, actually the words are commands, for them to return, to go back. And why would she do this? Remember, Ruth and Orpah were the wives that her sons took in Moab. This was their homeland that they were now willing to leave and to go with Naomi. Naomi realizes there's not, not going to be anything for them where they're, where they're going with me. But if they stay here, they can have the support of their, their mother's households, which would include their fathers and any sons that were there. And they're more likely to be able to get remarried in their own culture. Okay, so Naomi recognizes this and she sets aside 
her own needs. And there's like three stages to her plea, her in increasing pressure for them to go back. Stage one is, just go back, you're going to be better off. And they resist that. Stage two ends up being in verses 11 to 13, she just paints this super bleak picture of her life, right? And she actually uses this bulletproof logic. She's like, guys, you're not seeing this right here. Like, even if I got married tonight and conceived tonight, now I'm barren first off, but even if somehow that weren't the case and I got married tonight and, and conceived, are you going to wait around until my sons, twin sons, by the way, they'd have to be, are of the age to be able to marry them? Oh, and by the way, by that point in time, you're probably too old to have kids yourself. So this is the logic that she strings before them. And there's still probably some resistance because we're told there's almost a third stage to this plea with uh, uh, Ruth and Orpah where she just, she just kind of enters into bitterness at this point in time. And it comes across in a way that's kind of hard to understand in verse 13 in the ESV. That's the translation we use. But when you read other translations more simply, she says, it is more bitter for me than for you. It's almost as if she's starting to feel like, goodness gracious, will you just leave me alone? Like, my life is bitter. I'm, I'm cursed. And like, anybody who's around me is probably going to be cursed. And God doesn't, it seems like he doesn't love me anymore. And that I'm under his you know, his frown right now. So why would you want to be near me? And it actually starts to move into something that's a little more unhealthy, even if it started out something a little bit more Hesed love-like. It seems like a little bit of self-pity, understandably, may be creeping in. Nonetheless, in doing this, in pleading for them to go back, she's still cutting off whatever source of security she would have had in the remaining community that she knew. She'd be truly alone if they went back. So this was Hesed love. One directional love that benefits Ruth and Orpah but would come at a cost only to Naomi. Now this isn't even the first time that Hesed love has apparently been on display because Naomi had already experienced that from Ruth and Orpah. In verse 8, Naomi prays God's blessing upon them and she actually prays God would, the words are, deal kindly with them, Hesed as they have with her. So presumably, by Ruth and Orpah having chosen to stick with Naomi to this point, um, when they could have chosen to, to stay, that was an incredible expression of Hesed love to Naomi. She's, she's saying, may God Hesed love you as you have done this to me if you stay and you return. Now, Orpah ends up returning but Ruth stays by Naomi's side, and she still refuses to go. And then we just see Hesed love completely go next level at this point. Two things I want to point out. Number one, it's really difficult to comprehend how sacrificial this love was that uh, Ruth was expressing here. Because by going, by re refusing to leave Naomi and continuing to commit to go with her, she was leaving the culture and community that she knew and loved, right? She was basically ensuring she would never get married because she'd be a Moabite woman, a foreigner going back to Israel where they were called not to intermarry. So therefore, she would not have a hope of having children in the future. When she returned, she would be literally the lowest on the low of the totem pole of social acceptance below even the slaves, the Israel slave servants in that society. And then by going, because of the issues of provision and security that were not there for Naomi, 
she, she, there was no guarantee of, of survival, even. It was not a stretch, in other words, to say that this choice on Ruth's part could mean literal death for her, or at least a living death, experientially. And the kicker, what actually differentiates this expression of love from Ruth to Naomi and makes it next level, she didn't have to do this. It was a choice. I mean, there was no choice for Naomi. Tragedy had already unfolded. This was her lot in life at this point. She was either way entering into this valley of death, but Ruth chose to go with her in her valley of death. And there was nothing in it for her. And in fact, it appeared at this point it would come at great cost for her. Now, where this gets really interesting and I think applicable potentially is when we consider Orpah's response. How do we view her as one who went back to her people when Ruth stayed? Scholars and commentators will differ at this point on how we should interpret her actions. Right? Some would say, well, it's admirable that she was committed to that extent. Others would say, well, it just merely portrays something theologically about how God gives us choices, and that's all that it's really reflecting. And still others would say, no, it's actually a test that kind of differentiates between the faith or the love of these individuals, and she failed it. I I don't know which it is, but I will try to draw some conclusions here, starting off with just saying it seemed that Orpah genuinely cared, sincerely, for her mother-in-law, Naomi. The difference, however, between Ruth and Orpah is what ultimately guided their love for Naomi. Because for Orpah, what ultimately determined what love should look like for Naomi was what? Naomi's pleading with her. Naomi's expressed desire as to what she wanted her to do. So Orpah's asking herself this question, well, what is this person saying they want the most? I'll do that because that seems to be then what's most loving. But if, if, stick with me, if the highest ethic by which we determine what love looks like is another person's desires, that can be really problematic and even destructive in the end. Let me give you some examples of how this can play out today. How many Hollywood marriages, whether portrayed in TV shows or in actuality, and have I seen end in divorce with one of the spouses expressing they weren't happy anymore? So the most loving thing for me to do was to divorce them. I mean, it's rampant. But at what cost? Or what about the person, more in particular, the child who's experiencing confusion over their gender? And they're expressing a desire to be something other than what God had designed them to be at birth. And they express a desire to transition from a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy it could feel like the right thing to do is to support them in that because that's what makes them happy, so that's what's most loving. But at what cost? There's a TV show some of you may be familiar with, My 600-Pound Life. And it's about the lives of these individuals who are extremely overweight um, and to the point of being bedridden. And in one episode, there was a woman who was building her a social media platform and uh, following around what she was eating, and I don't mean healthy stuff to lose weight, but like indulgent stuff. And there, there's this interesting dynamic because her family initially was very concerned and um, for her well-being 
and knew what this could ultimately lead to, but in the end, they resigned themselves to, you know what, like, this is what makes her happy, so we're going to support her in this. And so, to the point at which she can't get food for herself, but they're coming back with, you know, a half dozen Big Macs from McDonald's that she can then showcase on her social media platform. This is, this is how twisted it can become, that they felt like the right thing to do is to support her in this because it's what makes her happy. See, Orpah's decision to return was not because she didn't love Naomi. Even sincerely, even sacrificially, look what she was willing to do up to that point. But the ultimate determiner of the highest love for Orpah was Naomi's desire. Is there a different way? Is there a higher ethic for love? The answer is yes, and Ruth shows us the way. To try to clarify this before we look at Ruth, there are three different forms of love that are in view here today. There's a love right here, like kind of down at the bottom that we've talked about, a love that sets its limitations based upon how I feel. This is a selfish love. This is a love that that limits how far we're willing to go based upon a, a threshold we're not willing to cross because it'll cost us too much. It's a love I experience in my own life in terms of experiencing that being the governor sometime, okay? Then there's this next level of love. It's this love that sets limits based upon what others feel. It actually could be incredibly unselfish and sacrificial, but it also can be very misinformed love. This was Orpah. And then there's a love that considers what's in the best interests of others as defined by God. It's love that's informed by God's ethic of love, which often doesn't make sense to us and often seems incredibly radical or ridiculous to the world around us. And this was Ruth, and let me show you why. In Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 to 17 that we read, I'll read it again, it says, But Ruth said, and this is in her beautiful, stubborn, poetic response to commitment after Naomi's pleaded for her to go, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Through verse 16, the first half of that poetic response, You could read that as a profound expression of commitment to Naomi only. And it certainly was a commitment to Naomi and love for Naomi, but it was more than that. Because in that last stanza, she says, where you die, I'll die, and there I will be buried. Why is that important? Naomi was a lot older than Ruth. Naomi was more than likely to die well before Ruth died. One would expect If Ruth's commitment was only to Naomi, at that point, she would have drawn the line and she would have returned to Moab. But she doesn't. She commits to die where Naomi dies and be buried there because she would stay on long after Naomi died because her commitment was not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God, who was her God. 
This wasn't an in-the-moment decision of passion that Ruth is making. It's a decision she's already made through her faith that the God of Israel is the one true God, and to him she has given her allegiance. And what it looks like for her to sacrificially love him is a hesed, one-way, loyal love of Naomi. A love that's willing to give up everything with no expectation of anything in return. It's a love without an exit strategy. And we've seen this before elsewhere because the Bible is one story told in many stories. And those many stories are really shadows of the greatest story in history, which was God becoming a man to enter the world to the point of giving his own life without an exit strategy. And by the way, he was and is perfect, and he was under no obligation to do it, but he chose to leave heaven in order to take on hell for us. Philippians 2 says it well in verses 5 through 8, where Paul says to the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, clung to, selfishly clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we were helpless, when we were desperate, when we were without hope, Jesus, at infinite cost to himself, chose not just to go through the valley of death with us, but to substitute himself for us so that we didn't have to. So today, as we celebrate communion in a moment, we remember that. The cross, pictured in communion, is a picture of God's love for us without an exit strategy. His one-way, loyal love. The way we do communion, celebrate communion here at Terra Nova, is you'll have the next couple of songs as we respond and worship together to come forward and to receive the broken piece of matzah, and you can dip that into either the wine or the juice, representing Jesus' broken body for you, shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins, not based upon an expectation of something in return from us, but based upon who God is, a God of hesed love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, May your name be made holy on this earth, but starting within our own hearts. Help us to see in your word, to see in the story of Ruth today and as we go through this series, the one-directional Hesed love that inspires awe in our hearts, that is so different than the world when we rightly understand it. And help us to see how you've loved us with that love through giving your son Jesus to die for us, in whose name we pray. Amen.